The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The previous chapter begins with the aftermath of the fight between the PCs and Sov Merriman, who had transformed into an undead anti-paladin through an unconventional use of the spell, Finger of Death. Although the companions win the fight and defeat the enemy, they worry about what consequences there may be, if any, from Sov having blown Blacknail's horn. Speaking of the horn, a detect magic spell from the NPC Grumblebelly reveals that, having been broken, it is no longer enchanted. Additionally, the spell discovers that Sob's weapon, his mace, was magical, as was the lid of Black Null's sarcophagus. While Gyrios wonders if he should use the weapon, and Harl decides not to disturb Black Null's remains, Eridine discovers a secret door in the bottom of Grithwip's empty sarcophagus. Using it, they descend into a different part of the vault. Grumblebelly explains how the place was made by a kind of magical excavation, once they have entered, they discover a small living area and a study full of delicate and ancient scrolls and papers. A locked door proves to be too much for our newly leveled up rogue to handle on her own, but with a little help from Umura, the door is opened. Chapter 52, Part 1 Day 62, Evening Party status. Harl, 20 of 26 hit points. Gyrios, 19 of 33. Eridin, 15 of 18. Umora, 23 of 23. Grumblebelly, 11 of 11. Spells available. Umora has memorized. Levitate. Gyrios has prayed for. Cure light wounds. And bless. Umura and Eridine followed Harl into a room of similar shape and size to the first, which by now they all assumed to have been Grithwip's living and sleeping quarters. Unlike that room, this one was full of interesting things. There were twin tables set corner to corner so that they formed a V, atop which were tools and instruments of all shapes, sizes, and functions. There were whetstones, files, little grindstone wheels, pliers, tongs, tweezers, ingots of various types of metal, a magnifying lens, 
a smattering of loose gemstones, both cut and uncut, and any number of gadgets and devices whose names and functions were beyond their ken. Everything was blanketed with a thick layer of dust. A third metal mine rations box was set beside a small grindstone that, given its small size, must have been meant for detail work. As interesting as all of these curiosities were, there were two things that were far more eye-catching. One was a suit of plate and mail armor strapped to a kind of stone mannequin. This dummy was built right up out of the stone, not set upon the floor, but a part of it. It even had a round and featureless head. The armor was made from an unfamiliar metal. It was darkly shiny and somehow seemed to have repelled the dust that clung to everything else. It had exquisite detail work in black enamel and silver filigree. A line of rubies graced the gorget. Each gauntlet was likewise bejeweled with a single ruby set in silver. While every other part of the armor was flawless, the breastplate was marred by a massive scorched blemish where, very clearly, the setting for an enormous gemstone marked the epicenter of the blast. Fire-blackened streaks radiated around the gem housing like a black sun. The second item of great interest was right in front of the armored mannequin. It was a skeleton of a dwarf, apparently still in the same prone position it had been in when life had left the body. The dwarf must have been killed by whatever explosion had damaged the armor. The skeleton was not fully intact. The front half of the skull was missing. It had somehow been reduced to a cranial bowl. The edges of this bowl were all warped and malformed, like a child's attempt at clay pottery. It should not have been possible for bone to take such a shape. Harl was not looking at the skeleton. Strike me dead if this is not Blacknail's actual armor, he said reverently. Interesting choice of expressions, mumbled Umura, crossing her arms and looking down at the half-skull. Do you think these bones belonged to Grithwip? asked Gyrios. He had seen something glint among the remains. He squatted and bent over the skeleton to get a closer look. Whose else could they be? replied the dwarf. Was it one of the glyphs that killed this dwarf? ventured Umora. She uncrossed her arms and scratched behind her ear. No, that doesn't really add up, does it? Gyrios was reaching forward and was about to fish out the shiny object from among the bones when, upon hearing Umora's words, he froze. Just then they heard Grumblebelly approaching from the other room. Whether he was talking to himself or to someone in particular wasn't quite clear. To think that I almost didn't think to look in the mine rations box. What a treasure. And all of them perfectly intact. I'm sure this will be the... Oh. Grumblebelly once again wore a mask of comical astonishment. His eyes went from the suit of plate mail, then down to the skeleton on the floor. Grithwip. Oh my, oh my. I see. I, uh, I see what has happened here. Was it one of those glyphs of warding? Asked Harl. Might there be others? No to both questions. This was not caused by a glyph of warding, and we will not encounter any others. Gyrios, feeling somewhat emboldened by this, picked up the shiny thing from Grithwip's remains. You're saying that a glyph of warding did not cause that? Asked Umura, pointing at the blast mark on the breastplate. Then what did cause it? Asked Harl. Gyrios, still squatting, looked at the thing he held in his hand. It was a key. Dramatis Personae Grithwip Blacknail 614 years ago
Grithwip twisted the key, locking the door behind him, and then slipped it into his pocket. Today would be a good day, he thought, with a small smile of satisfaction. Turning around, he appraised his work with pride. This place had been his workroom for many months, but today he would complete his labor, and after that, well, the greatest test of his life would be before him then, and he would meet death head on. He would finish what his father had begun. Grithwip fished around in his pocket where his hand yet remained. His fingers, thickly calloused from so many hours working at the grindstone, closed around something hard and wrapped in silk. When he withdrew his hand, he held a little package between thumb and forefinger. Carefully removing the black silken wrapping revealed an enormous ruby. It was easily the size of his thumb from the first knuckle to the fleshy tip. Such a perfect specimen he had never before seen. With no bubbles, inclusions, or discoloration, he had ground the facets himself. Twenty little triangles, all perfectly spaced apart. He rolled it about in his fingertips, and it caught the light, sparkling with scarlet twinkles as if lit by a fire from within. It was true that the greatest test of his life would follow the completion of his father's armor, but today was not without danger, and he would need a jewel as perfect as this one to succeed in his task. When he bound the power of the ruby to the breastplate, there would come a moment when the magic could go wild. This was a risk every artificer took in the creation of any of their works, but today the risk would be greater, as the enchantment he intended to bind to the armor was a major one. But had he not rehearsed for this moment all his life? He would not fail now not when there were still greater deeds to complete beyond what he accomplished here today. Grithwip said a quick prayer to Grunmog, fit the ruby into the housing, and cleared his mind. He made a mental and spiritual connection with the stone and called forth its power. It responded right away, eagerly meeting him in the space between his will and imagination. Grithwip now began to recite the incantation, very precisely, very carefully, letting it depart his mind and enter the stone. At last, the magic of the spell was inside the stone. It mingled with the magic of the jewel, and the two energies began to whirl and eddy about each other. The intensity built as they intertwined, spinning into a tiny vortex. Then, all of a sudden, the vortex seemed to fold in upon itself. For one pregnant moment, Grithrip knew he had lost control and was able to appreciate what was about to happen. Then, the ruby exploded in his face. Welcome to DiceGeeks.com Tabletop RPG Show. Level up your RPG campaigns by filling yourself with stories and knowledge. Explore topics from archaeology to film history to writing to literature and much, much more. This is DiceGeeks.com Tabletop RPG Show. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 52 Part 2. Day 62. Twilight. Party status. Harl. 20 of 26 hit points. Gyrios. 21 of 33, having used his last Cure Light Wounds spell to heal himself for just two hit points. Eridine. 15 of 18. Umura. 23 of 23. 
Grumblebelly. Eleven of Eleven. Spells available. Umura has memorized. Levitate. One by one, they blinked into existence in the little natural pocket in the stone directly under the skull sign of the necropolis. Quickly orienting themselves, they crawled up and out onto the surface of the eye in the fire. Above them, a darkening sky with just a sliver of moon greeted them, as did the ranger, Raydell, who was sitting there, sipping from his water skin and waiting for them. He nodded a cool greeting to Harl, who emerged first, wearing a new and very impressive suit of black plate mail. The Satori waited until all members of the party were accounted for before speaking. It seems that you were successful, he said, and then, noticing the black mark on the dwarf's breastplate, added, But perhaps you didn't manage to find some trouble wherever it was that you went. Harl eyed the other man. No, we failed, he said simply, before adding, Thank you for waiting, Ranger. Raydell shrugged and stood up, passing his water skin to Umura and indicating with his hand that she should share it around. Do you think we should camp here or move elsewhere? Raydell considered for a moment. Here, this is the safest spot. There are crevices to hide ourselves in, and as far as we know, there is only one way onto the island. It's the most defensible spot we're likely to find before it becomes fully dark. They picked a spot where they would not be visible from across the river, and as they laid out their bedrolls, the various members of the party told Raydell everything that had transpired in the vault. Umura described the living iron statues, and Eredin shared how Umura had all but destroyed them with a single bolt of lightning shot from her fingertips. Gyrios took a long drink of water, and then told him of the terrifying encounter in the crypt with the one who called himself the Moth's Wing Paladin. He also showed him the smooth-headed mace that he had claimed. To these stories, Raydell asked no questions and made no comment. His face remained impassive at each new detail. Umura wondered if he actually believed what they were telling him. Grumblebelly was still holding the mine rations box that he had taken from Grithwip's study. Although a week of travel had reduced it considerably, the artificer's belly still protruded so much he could barely maintain his hold on the box. He set it down in front of the Sachori and tapped the lid proudly. It was quite a clever thing, or a lucky thing at any rate. This box has a good seal. There were scrolls inside, you see, perfectly preserved. Grumblebelly was more excited by the cache of scrolls he had discovered than he was by Harl's new armor but he explained that as well. The armor had once belonged to the most famous of all dwarven champions, the Hornblower, Mikeeli Blacknail. The scorched mark on the front had been caused by his son's failed attempt to augment its enchantment. Artificing is very dangerous work, you know. Not for the faint-hearted. He added, immodestly. And what of the horn you sought to recover? Raydell's only question. Destroyed, but not before. Harl looked up to the sky, now dark and scattered with stars, for the words to finish his sentence. Well, did you not hear something, Ranger? Raydell frowned and shook his head no. I see, was all Harl said further. Suddenly, he got up and wandered away, feeling the need to be alone. By the stones, he could barely go an hour without succumbing to a feeling of crushing failure. It was overwhelming. First Dwervar, then Valiador. And now the horn. Was he destined to fail? He felt unworthy of the armor he wore. He felt unworthy of the title he bore. He didn't want any of it. He had failed at everything.
I hope that Harl will be all right if we leave him alone with his thoughts for a while. We have a few things to talk about before we can move on with the story. Let's go back to the hidden space under the crypt and take it from there. Because he would be unable to carry his own armor and black nails, Harl was persuaded to wear the horn blowers and abandon his own. Although he donned it somewhat reluctantly, once it was on, he realized that it fit him perfectly. You will not be surprised to learn that the armor is special. It is made of a rare metal called Mentzarium, and it is enchanted, making it yet stronger and lighter. In game terms, Blacknail's armor provides a plus two bonus to the wearer's AC. It also has the potential to be upgraded if a talented artificer who has a jewel of sufficient size and value has the courage to risk the binding ritual. I'm sure this is a topic that we will eventually revisit, but for now, let's move on, because Harl is not the only one to acquire something new. Gyrios has claimed the enemy's weapon. Sov's mace is something of an oddity. The shape of the weapon's head is unconventional. It doesn't appear particularly vicious, but it is a deadly weapon, and magical too. Besides having a plus one bonus, the mace has other properties that even Sov didn't know about. How Sov came to possess this weapon is a story that might never be told, but perhaps that isn't important. It's Gyrios's mace now, or at least it became so after the cleric cast his spell of Bless upon it. Have you ever read the description of the Bless spell in the expert rulebook? It's an interesting one. Bless's primary use is to add a bonus to attack, damage, and saving throw rolls. We've seen how that works. But it has a secondary function and can be used to, well, I'll just read from the book. Quote, at the DM's option, this spell may be used as part of a blessing or cleansing ritual. End quote. Isn't that something? And, by fortune or by fate, it also happened that Gyrios took the weapon and performed this cleansing ritual on the summer solstice, which is the most holy of all days for those who follow Mazakar. Because of that, I'll rule that no rules will be required for Gyrios to wield the mace and for any trace of evil to be cast out of it. Furthermore, like Blacknail's armor, there's the potential for this weapon to improve over time. The weapon itself cannot be upgraded. Instead, it will improve as Gyrios becomes more worthy of it. If Gyrios achieves the ability to cast third-level spells down the road, he will unlock a secret power in the mace. Well, that takes care of Harl and Gyrios and brings us to Grumblebelly. Much earlier, while sitting on the mine rations box in Grithwip's study and lamenting the loss of some very valuable texts by his own hand as well as by Umura's, the artificer had the sudden notion that he might literally be sitting on a treasure. He stood up, opened the box, and found that, in fact, he was. Inside the well-sealed box were eight scroll cases, each one holding a single scroll that, by the grace of Grunmog, had not succumbed to the ravages of time. Four of the scrolls detailed plans for creating new glyphs of warding and mechanical traps. The fifth scroll documented Grithwip's process in creating the horn. Much of what was written here was beyond Grumblebelly's ability to comprehend. He would show it to his master when they returned to Thangar and see what she thought. The sixth scroll explained the improvement Grithwip had intended to make to his father's armor. Again, it was mostly beyond his understanding, but Grumblebelly could tell that it was somehow concerned with pyromancy. The last two scrolls each contained one spell. But which spells? I'm going to determine them at random. Two scrolls, two spells, each of levels one to four to be determined on a d4. Let's roll and find out. The first one contains a level two spell. The other one, also level two. If Grumblebelly had had more self-control, he might have kept these a secret, 
but he blurted out the discovery to Amora before he could think better of it, and then told himself he had shared the information on purpose. He was no thief. And besides, they had treated him fairly so far. It's true that after the defeat of the Gaxharn living statues, Grumblebelly had managed to work free a pair of perfect bloodstones, each worth a whopping 1,000 gold pieces, and slipped them into his pockets while nobody was looking. But they were not meant to enrich him. He had taken them so that he might one day use them to create works of artistry and magic, absolutely justifiable in his mind. Back to the scrolls. Grumblebelly will keep one and give the other to Umura. I'll roll to determine which spell is written on each of them at random, but if any spell is shown that an artificer would not use, I'll re-roll. Okay, let's see what they got. Rolling a d12 for this against the list in the expert rulebook. Grumblebelly's scroll holds the spell. Levitate. Okay, well, that makes good sense for an artificer, so that roll stands. Umura's roll. She's got a one. That's continual light. Also very appropriate for an artificer, so even though it's not a very glamorous result, that's what I'm going with. Umura might try to add this to her spellbook later. At any rate, it's easy to see how these two spellcasters would have chosen who took which scroll. Just a couple more things to detail before we get back to the PCs. There were a number of uncut and expertly cut but minutely flawed rubies in the workroom. The companions took all of these, setting aside a one-fifth share for Grumblebelly. The combined value of the party's share of these gemstones is 800 gold pieces. All of the other things in the vault, the crumbling and delicate scrolls, the artificer tools, and various mundane items of historical interest are left behind. Once they have safely made it back to Thangar, and he is reported to both his master and to Chief Augerstone, Grumblebelly will arrange for a team to return here to properly salvage, restore, and catalog everything. Even though he had seen Harl reject Umura's attempts at consolation earlier in the day, Gyrios could not stand by in good conscience while his friend suffered, and so he found himself walking over to stand beside the dwarf, not long after Harl had removed himself from their company. Harl was sitting cross-legged on the ground, staring vacantly into the night and chewing contemplatively on a mine-ration pellet. May I sit with you? asked Gyrios. Harl indicated an empty space on the rock beside him by way of answer. Thank you, replied the cleric, arranging himself on the smooth ground. Gyrios pulled his knees into his chest and hugged his legs as he looked up at the stars. For a time, neither of them spoke. Eventually, wanting to break the silence, he removed his half-helm and ran a hand over his bald scalp. Ah, it feels better to have that thing off. Harl just grunted in reply. A moment later, he offered the wooden mine rations box to Gyrios. Would you care for one? Oh, um, yes. Gyrios carefully selected one of several identical pellets and placed it apprehensively in his mouth. He bit down. Its flavor was located somewhere in the intersection between bacon, butter, and dirt. How does it taste? asked Harl. Mm, terrible, replied Gyrios. He hadn't intended to be humorous, but drew a chuckle from Harl all the same. <laughs> Seeing his opening, Gyrios made his play. Harl, I could not help but notice that you do seem low. Harl's expression dropped and took on a look that might have been either mild bewilderment or contempt. Gyrios pressed on. I too know something about feeling a failure. Listen, do you know what happened the last four times I tried to channel the healing powers of Bazagar? 
Harl's expression relaxed. Gyrios wasn't being obtuse, he was simply trying to empathize. What happened? He replied. Not much, said Gyrios with a bitter laugh. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Would you like to guess what I have decided my constant failures signify? That a great darkness is coming. No, I mean, uh, I, I don't think so. I hope not. What I think it means is that Mazagar would like me to try to solve my problems on my own, without his help. So you don't think a great darkness is coming? Harl looked suddenly very sad. Unprepared for this line of conversation, Gyrios floundered. Well, what makes you ask? Harl was quiet for a moment, then he patted the cleric on the back and said, You are a good friend, Gyrios. As you are to me, Harl. Harl sighed. When we left Black Nails Vault, did you not expect the world to look... different? Because of the sounding of the horn, I mean. He was looking straight ahead into the darkness again. Not far away, the river was flowing like a shining black ribbon in the night. Well, said Gyrios, I know we failed in getting to the horn before it could be used, but at least Barok never got it. We might have lost, but is it not some consolation that he did not win? Not on his terms, anyway. And look around. The stars are out. We are alive and well. You have your wonderful and wise friend Gyrios at your side, and this box of delicious... Well, you have your friend at your side. <laughs> Gyrios chuckled again and patted Gyrios on the back a second time. You are a good friend, he repeated. Harl shifted. He put his hand into a pocket, and when he withdrew it, it cupped a number of dark rubies, the ones they had taken from Grithwip's workroom. The cut ones glimmered in the faint starlight. Harl looked at them and smiled. Most beautiful and precious, offered Gyrios. <laughs> Harl? <laughs> Back at the camp, sometime later, Gyrios and Harl returned to find Umura, lying on her bedroll. She was propped up on one elbow and looking at them accusingly. What in the world was going on over there? The two of you were laughing like idiots. You might have drawn attention to our presence here. Gyrios, looking sheepish, dropped down to his own bedroll. But almost immediately he was smiling and suppressing laughter like before. Sorry, he managed to get out. I couldn't help it. What in the world is so funny? That hobgoblin you charmed, said Harl, and now Gyrios had to clamp a palm over his own mouth to keep from laughing out loud. It must still be out there, looking for your ruby ring. Both he and Gyrios burst into laughter all over again. <laughs> Umora didn't laugh. She hated goblins. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy and would like to support the show, there are now four ways to do so. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up my rules ultralight RPG called One Shot in the Dark on DriveThruRPG for a buck fifty. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your favorite podcatcher. My sincere thanks to everyone who has done any of the above. I'd like to read another review from iTunes today. This one was posted by Dr. John Bones. The doctor writes, Just loving this beautiful mix of storytelling and old-school D&D-style dice rolling. The loss of a PC is deeply felt when the dice have their say. 
now desperately waiting for episode 33 after binging the last 32 in a week, has reawakened my drive to write my next D&D campaign. Thanks, and please don't stop. Sorry for taking so long to see this, Dr. John Bones. Apple Podcasts could make it hard to find the reviews sometimes. I'm so glad that you found some attachment and inspiration in the story. No plans to stop anytime soon. Thanks for that great review. My gratitude also goes out to the voice actors whose efforts make all the difference. Continuing in the roles as Grumblebelly and Raydell are James Schrall of the podcast Subclass Act and Bruno of the Chronicles of the Crimson Hound YouTube channel. In his continued role as Grithwhip Blackdale is Bill Allen of Bill Allen World on YouTube. Thanks so much to you all. For listeners who would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at Manticore Tale or on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I'm still collecting questions for a potential future mailbag episode, so write me if there's anything you want to know. For a new map of Blackmail's Vault, along with some amazing listener-submitted artwork, show notes, and other errata, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Are you tired? Tired of listening to the same old 5e classes played over and over again? I'm a rogue who loves the shadows because of my tragic backstory. Players casting the same old spells? I cast Fireball. Dude, we are right next to the monster. I know. (laughs) And now roll Dessert. Fuck. Player characters so weak their damage numbers are in the negative. I punch him! Uh, roll 1d4. Uh, so that's a, uh, 1 with a minus 5. Then come listen to the Tasty Doom podcast. Enjoy the struggle of our DM attempting to balance monsters against our overpowered characters who put out unbelievable damage numbers. Join our heroes in an epic homebrew campaign in a land under siege by the undead. Come check us out on your favorite podcasting apps, YouTube, or reach us out on our Facebook. Twitter, or Instagram. And as we always like to say, stay tasty.